Hello, I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is Open Book, where I talk with some of the brightest minds out there about everything surrounding the written word, from authors and historians to figures in entertainment, neuroscientists, political activists, and of course, Wall Street. Sorry, I can't resist. Before we get into today's episode, if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We all love a review, even the bad ones. I want to hear the parts you're enjoying or how we can do better. You know I can roll with the punches, so let me know. Anyways, let's get to it. AOL, America Online, what an iconic company. Many of my age mates listening will remember having an AOL email address. I still have mine. Kara Swisher said, Steve Case is the nicest guy in tech, and I have to say I agree. He's also one of America's most accomplished entrepreneurs and is on a mission to bring our attention to entrepreneurship all around America, not just in the pockets we'd expect. I'm lucky enough to call Steve a friend, and he makes a great case for America and its innovation in this conversation. Pardon the pun there. So joining us now on Open Book, a dear friend and a wonderful entrepreneur, best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author, the co-founder of AOL and Revolution, writing an amazing book for our times, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. It's such a timely book for so many different reasons, but as we think about our country and we listen to the media, we sometimes miss the great entrepreneurs, large and small in the country, the great micro innovations that are taking place around the country. And Steve, thank you for doing the homework on this. Uh, But let's go to you for a second before we get into the book. Let's uh, head back into the 80s when you started AOL. This is before you were making pineapple pizza for Pizza Hut, I think, or right around the time, right after that, I guess. You started AOL in 1985. Only 3% of the people were online. You grew up in Hawaii, but uh, there you were in Washington. So uh, you are in the book, weirdly, right? Because that's you. You are rising from the rest with some no-name company you're calling America Online, but a becomes this transformational business. Uh, everybody has an AOL account. That's my vintage, at least. Maybe you're not my kids, but I have. I stole my <laughs> AOL account tied to my Amazon. So there you go. Tell us about that. Tell us about your start, sir. Yeah, it was an interesting journey. I was born and raised in Hawaii, as you mentioned, went to college in Massachusetts and knew I wanted to get into the internet. I, even this, I graduated in 1980, but there was no internet companies to go to back then because it was still more of an idea. Uh, and venture capitalists certainly weren't backing 21-year-old kids back then. So I ended up working for Procter & Gamble in Ohio for a couple of years, then Pizza Hut in Wichita, Kansas for about a year, and then moved to the Northern Virginia area to join a startup that promptly failed. But thankfully, two of the people I met there, uh, Jim Kimsey and Mark Mark Seraph and I co-founded America Online AOL in, in 1985. So that was you know, that was the path, a little bit circuitous, but I knew what I wanted to do. It just took me a little while to get on that path. But I think some of that experience, as you referenced, both growing up in Hawaii and even starting a company in Northern Virginia, where there really was no startup hub, there really was no venture capital, and it gave me an appreciation for some of the challenges of entrepreneurs all across the country. And that's really, I think, animated a lot of the, our work, both as investors over the last decade, as well as sort of champions of, of regional entrepreneurship. And ultimately led to, to writing this book. Okay, so before we get to the book, what did you see? Because you write about this, the visions that people have for their companies. 
3% of the country's online. No one's really using it as a format. What did you see that other people didn't see? And what were you looking at over from, let's say, 85 to 95 to 05? What were you thinking? Well, 85, we were just trying to raise the initial capital, get started. We were able to cobble together about a million dollars from venture capitalists in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Toronto, none of it from the Northern Virginia, Washington area. That got us going. We established some partnerships with some of the major PC manufacturers. Back then, Commodore was big. Radio Shack was big. Apple, IBM were, were of course, big. Uh, and they, those partnerships really got us going. And then about five years into it, we kind of relaunched it as America Online as our own brand name. Before, it was kind of white label partnership partnerships with those PC manufacturers. Uh, and I think what got what was made us successful in retrospect uh, was we really had a partnership bias. We didn't want to go it alone. We wanted to partner with major players who could accelerate our, our you know, creating awareness and you know, marketing trial, things like that. And also we, from day one in 1985, thought that the killer app of the internet was people. So we focused on a lot of the what's now we think of as social media, things like message boards, you know, instant messaging, chat rooms, you know, all, all that kind of stuff that allowed people to connect with each other. Uh, at the time, our competitors, we're focusing on content, focusing on commerce. We were focusing really on community, also really focused on ease of use, you know, trying to make it easy to use, useful, fun, and affordable. Uh, and so that, that focus on the consumer, focus on community, and focus on partnerships really took us from a, a fledgling startup that most people weren't paying attention to, 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 you know, the first internet company to go public in 1992. It was, uh, we raised $10 million, Anthony, you'll appreciate this, at a market value that day of $70 million. Nobody knew or cared about what we were doing. Seven years later, that 70 million went to 160 billion. So it was actually the best performing stock of the decade. And that's when we decided to merge with Time Warner and I stepped aside as the as the CEO. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a great journey. Well, you know, this is before you and I knew each other personally. I was on the sales desk with a guy named Michael Parekh. Uh, remember yep, Michael, Michael Parekh? Okay. Of so, he was one of the research analysts covering Exactly. Us. So he was so excited about your business. He said, listen, I no longer want to be a salesperson. I need to move down to the research department and cover AOL, which is going to totally transform the internet and totally transform our businesses. And it did, frankly. You you led to a lot of amazing innovations. Uh, AOL Messenger, we're still using that. We're just using it in different forms, as you know, but you guys obviously invented that. But I want to I want to talk about the country that you and I love, because when I read your book, and I love the book for so many different reasons, but when I read your book, it reconnected me with the core values of this country and the core values, your parents in Hawaii or my immigrant family here in New York. Tell us about your road trips and the country that you love. And what did you learn about the country uh, when you were doing the research to write this book? Well, there's so much, as you know, so much focus on you know, what divides us uh, as a country, so much focus on, you know, what's not working. And I think by spending a lot of time over the last decade traveling around the country, visiting dozens and dozens of cities and, and meeting thousands of entrepreneurs, it left me with a much more optimistic take on America, that they're really great people all across the country with big ideas. We need to help those entrepreneurs who are willing to take the risk of starting a company, help them by providing some of that initial seed funding to get going, help them as they're trying to create some visibility, help them as they're trying to to establish some uh, some partnerships. Uh, but if we can do that, we can not just continue to lead as the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world, but do it in a more inclusive way. So it's not just some people in some places doing well, and a lot of people in a lot of places kind of feeling kind of left out and left behind. And so it just, it just kind of redoubled my own commitment to do what I can to support these entrepreneurs, to champion these cities, these rising cities that are really fighting to become more relevant in the future by creating some of the new companies of the future, sometimes even creating new 
new industries of, of the future. Uh, and if we can continue to, to do that, then I think this con- country can continue to lead the way. But it's not going to be what's happening here in Washington, D.C., where I am, or even in places like Silicon Valley. Those are going to continue to be important. But I think the real action in a, kind of is going to be all across the country. It needs to be all across the country. And the, the big surprise to me when I got into this work over a decade ago was that while small businesses are very, very important and big businesses like Fortune 500 kind of companies are very, very important, new businesses that are under five years old, essentially startups, are the biggest job creators in our economy. So if we want to create jobs everywhere in the country, we need to launch new companies everywhere in the country, not just tech startups, by the way, startups of all kinds. Uh, and, and that's what we're trying to do with, with the rise of the rest. Well, do you see yourself, Steve, in some of these entrepreneurs that you met? Of course, of course. When I was in my twenties, I had this idea around the internet. I was able to, you know, kind of, a, you know, kind of align with other people who shared the passion, build that initial founding team. We were able to raise some of the capital. It was a struggle. A couple of times in that first decade, that, that we almost hit the wall, had to go through layoffs. It was, you know, look kind of dire, but we kind of fought through it and eventually came out the other side. And at our peak, about half of all the internet traffic went through AOL, and it was the most valuable internet company. So it was, it was a, a great journey. A lot of like, it was kind of a roller coaster. And that is the story of most entrepreneurs. It's, as you well know, it's sort of, it's rarely an overnight success. It's usually 10 year in the making overnight success. So I love to talk to the people, hearing their stories and, you know, sometimes championing their, 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 their successes, but also helping commiserate with them a little bit when they're having some struggles. Listen, I got tire tracks on my back. I know you've had various tire tracks on your back over the years. I think that's what makes the country so interesting. You know, uh, Bill Ackman, who's a friend of mine, he's running Persian Square. He said something to me a few days ago, which I'll share with you, which you get intuitively. He's like, you got to just survive and you got to push forward. And no matter how bad it looks, if you keep pushing, you know, there's the pathway to the opportunities, the pathway to the uh, riches, the execution, et cetera. Um, You talk to 40 entrepreneurs in the book, and I know you wanted to include many more and you write about this. Tell us what you did to narrow it down. This book could have been 2,000 pages, not two. 200 pages, right, given exactly. all the experiences we've met, people we met, cities we visited. But we just wanted to obviously make it more digestible and create a, a narrative that people hopefully would find uh, you know compelling. So we did have to you know kind of edit a lot of the things we wanted to include in the book. But some of the cities and some of the companies and some of the, the stories that I that I found interesting. I start off the book, as you know, in, in Detroit, which is where we did our first bus tour you know 10 years ago almost. And it's amazing what's happened in Detroit. 100 years ago was the most innovative city in America. The car was the hot technology of the day. It was kind of the Silicon Valley of its time. It's the fifth largest city in America, going gangbusters. And then over a half century, lost 60% of its population. And the year before we rolled in on our bus, uh, the city of Detroit declared bankruptcy. So it went from being this dominant innovation city to, to, in a city to being uh, you know, essentially bankrupt. In the last 10 years, it's really fought its way back. We back companies like Shinola and StockX. And, and there's you know the, both those companies now have over 1,000 employees in, the, in downtown uh, Detroit and are, are, it's really giving people more hope and sense of possibility in, in Detroit. So that was interesting to see. We also found you know, companies like in uh, Atlanta, a company called Hermius, that's building a Mach 5 engine. So you can go from Atlanta to Europe in like 90 minutes. And the Air Force, not surprisingly, is a big uh, big customer of, of theirs. The fact that that company is in Atlanta, not in, say, Silicon Valley, I think is is uh, is striking or not far from where I am now here in, in, in Washington, D.C., in Richmond, Virginia. There's a company called Temper Pack that we backed that 
created essentially sustainable packaging, trying to rid the world of styrofoam. Uh, it's important for, from an environmental standpoint, but it's also important that, that pharma companies can get their drugs to people and keep them cold and, and food companies can get food to people and, and keep them cold. But we need something other than styrofoam. They, they, the team there decided to build that company to create more of a sustainable solution to packaging and do that in, in, uh, in Richmond or in Baltimore. You know, this company Catalyte is basically using AI, which a lot of people are scared of, uh, to essentially help people understand what their real talent might be. And for a lot of people, nobody talked to them when they were a kid about what coding or some of the, you know, that kind of career path. But if you're a Catalyte, you take a test and you and you do well on the test, Catalyte will put you through a program at their own expense uh, to teach you coding and then place you in a job. And so it enables people. I remember one was a UPS truck driver. You know, nobody, nobody talked to him about coding when he was, you know, growing up. And suddenly he realized he had that skill, got retrained and was making, you know, I think it was more than two times more in terms of his salary once he got the Catalyte uh, training. So these are stories of entrepreneurs in different cities, you know, building companies that are disrupting, reimagining different different industries. Uh, and so it's not about any one company, about any one entrepreneur, about any one city. It's just if you take a step back, it's a broader story of this next chapter of America. I think, you know, it's so well said. You, you mentioned AI. It's very topical. Just 30 seconds, if you don't mind. Should people be afraid of AI? What's your opinion? Yeah, they, they, I think there should be some uh, concern about any new technology, but at the same time, try to focus on the positive, figure out what are the things that it can do that can move things forward in, in different different uh, sectors. I think we're beginning to have that conversation. AI, is, as you know, is something that's been building for really 40 years. It just became something in the last few months because the, the really the success of ChatGPT became much more, got a lot more attention. So now we're starting to have a conversation about what can the technology enable? What should the guardrails be in terms of, you know, kind of government policy? so that you get the benefits of new technologies like AI or robotics or other technologies while also hedging against some of the downsides. I'm glad we're now having that conversation. Yeah, listen, I, I, I'm, I have to confess that I'm addicted to chat, GBT. I can't tell you the questions I've <laughs> it asked. It is pretty good. I, it is I'm pretty addicted. good. I'm addicted. You know, and I, uh, I could have, uh, my producer and I didn't, but I could have said, hey, chat, GBT, what question should I ask Steve Case on the rise of the rest? I'm sure it would have been better than the ones I'm actually asking, but but I read your book and loved your book, so I wanted to focus on the things that I found so interesting in the book. Let's go to some of these stories. Uh, let's go to Dallas, Texas, some of the people that you found there and um, some of the ideas. And I, I guess there's a very hopeful, aspirational book about America, actually. You know, this is a, a book that Americans need to read to remind themselves what the country, the better parts of this country, the better parts of our angels are really like. So what was going on in Dallas, Texas that you discovered? Well, it's, it's true with all these different cities. As I said, it's not any one or two cities. It's really dozens of cities. In Dallas, it's historically been around kind of legacy industries, oil and gas, things like that. Uh, but Dallas, as well as Houston, San Antonio, and of course, Austin, there's a lot of momentum around some of these new technologies, some of the industries of, of the future. We back several companies in, in the region, including Nixon, which is basically reimagining apartments so that you can basically move into apartment and have it all set up for you. If you're only going to be there for six months, you can move somewhere else and not have to worry about you know, storing the furniture or reselling the, the furniture. They, it brings kind of a hospitality lens to the, the apartment business or Canaris, which is focused on uh, helping companies understand how to move more towards you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and track things with, with metrics and, and different uh, uh, different kinds of, 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 of businesses. So there are just a variety of different things that are happening in these different, uh, different cities that are really giving me hope for those cities and also hope for, for America. Louisville, Kentucky. 
Louisville, Kentucky is another example of a, a city we've actually been back to twice. There, we went there the first time, and they led an effort and let you know the mayor and the university president and some other you know, you know leaders in, in banking and so forth to you know get us to get the bus back uh, again. And then there's some amazing you know companies that are scaling there, not too far from uh, Louisville in a different part of uh, uh, Kentucky. There's a company we back called App Harvest that is basically focused on in- indoor agriculture, the largest con- you know, indoor controlled uh, environment agriculture in the country, and they picked that area because it's really well situated with within the, in the country. But, you know, 80% of the American population is within a 24-hour drive of where they're headquartered and they're using 90% less water. So it ties in with a sustainable solution and it's just healthier in terms of the fruits and vegetables that they're they're growing. And, that show, and, and the other thing that's striking about that is the area where they built this very large uh, production facility is Appalachia, which for decades has struggled you know, with job loss and, and uh, even a loss of hope. And now there's hope in that area of of, of Kentucky yeah. because of the success of an entrepreneurial company like uh, like an app harvest. There's a uh, there's a very old investment banker, not old. I mean, he's only seventy, but I, he uh, he went to jail for insider trading. His name was Dennis Levine. I don't know if you remember Dennis. I do remember. Um, he has started something called Water Garden Farms, which is in your neck of the woods in Virginia, and he's producing six x. It's indoor agriculture. He's producing six x the produce, uh, making packaged salads for people indoors. Everything you just said, less energy, more efficient, twenty four-hour cycling process. So there's continual harvesting. You don't have to wait for the boom bus uh, climate conditions to create the uh, produce. And so, I mean, this is another, these are great examples of innovation that lead to environmental success as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, as you say, it's happening in many parts of the country and it's entrepreneurs reimagining, you know, farming, reimagining agriculture, reimagining our food systems so we can have healthier food that's also more sustainable. Uh, and it ties in with one of the real battles that's brewing and, you know, getting some attention now. We'll get more in the coming months, essentially battle for over water rights in, in the western part of the country, you know, Colorado, California, the, you know, there is Arizona. There's, a, there, there's limited water and, and, you know, not everybody can get the water they need. And some of the water, a lot of the water right now is going to agriculture in, in California. Uh, obviously, that's important. But some of these new solutions that allow you to do agriculture in other parts of the country and with using 90 percent less water are going to become increasingly important. Right. Well, we, we both agree on that. How about Puerto Rico? What did you find in Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico is interesting because uh, Jose Andres, the, the the chef who started a number of restaurants, uh, Haleo and others, but also started World Central Kitchen and is really you know, even been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for his work around the world. He has been uh, really loyal to Puerto Rico and in, in terms of helping them in their recovery. Uh, and so when he was, he's been a friend for you know 20 years, when he heard we were doing these Rise of the Rest bus tours, he said, you got to come to Puerto Rico and he would agree to kind of host it. And, and so we were there probably now four, four years ago, something like that. And there's still some recovery issues going on because some of the issues they've had with hurricanes and other other natural disasters. But there's a really spirit of, of possibility there. People are, are focused going back to the agriculture side. How do they become more self-sufficient? You know, almost ni- over 90 percent of their food is imported from outside of Puerto Rico. So how do they use their own land to grow food and create more sustainability, which will hedge against potential you know future kind of climate uh, risks that they they face? And again, just as we've seen in different parts of the, the, the country, there's this entrepreneurial spirit that's been flickering and, and it's starting to accelerate. And that's something that bodes well for this, this next decade. Yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff. I got I to gotta ask you about the recent regional banking situation, because when I 
read your book and think about what you're saying about small businesses and the growth. You and I both know that the regional banks are a great part of the capital arterial structure for these sorts of businesses. You know, the money center banks, it may be too small to go to these money center banks or, or you know, sometimes you need a local banker to help you get your financing. What do you think is going on in the regional banking sector of our economy and how do you think it will inhibit or hurt innovation or am I over-exaggerating the issue there? No, I think it's a concern. I actually did it. I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago about the Silicon Bank, Valley Bank situation. And, and part of it was expressing the concern you're, you're raising, that we need to make sure we're funding the innovation economy. The, the biggest, most successful banks, JP Morgan and so forth, aren't really kind of set up to deal with these emerging entrepreneurs. That's one of the things that SVB did well. So they obviously had some, some challenges. It wasn't about loaning to entrepreneurs. The loan portfolio was actually in pretty good shape. It was, as you know, a, a mistake on the balance where they locked in, I think it was $80 billion at 1.7% interest rates as interest rates were rising. So things kind of became upside down. And it, that's why you had the, the, the need for this, this rescue, the backstopping of, of, of the deposits. Uh, and so now that they've been acquired, we'll see what happens there. I know a number of regional banks and even some um, some new companies are trying to fill that void and make sure that they're, they're, they're providing the banking services that young emerging companies need. And it is critically important. It's not, it doesn't get a lot of attention. More of the attention is on the venture capital, the equity risk capital that is invested in these companies. But as they scale, a number of them also do rely on, on, on banks in terms of venture debt and other, other kinds of products. And we need to make sure that's still available to them. Otherwise, we will see fewer companies starting, fewer companies scaling, fewer jobs being created, less economic growth, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's very important that we, we learn from what happened there and try to make sure we don't have a situation like that again, but we don't lurch and overcorrect in a way that stifles some of the, the ability for these banks to support these young companies. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it's prescient what you're saying. I, I also think that you identified something I'd like you to share with everybody, which is about the American dream. So I want to take you back. Steve Case, 1980, coming out of school, defined for me the American dream. And then I want you to then say, Steve Case, 2023, has the American dream been redefined? And if so, what is it like today? Well, I'd say when I was coming out of college in 1980, there was still that sense of possibility, a sense that you could do well if you put your mind to something and, 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 and really stuck with it. You could accomplish something. And, the you know, in some ways, the core, I think, definition of the American dream is you have the opportunity to do you know, better than your parents or better than your, your grandparents. There was sort of a, a ladder uh, up that was available to almost every, not everybody, but almost everybody. And the question was, how do you make sure that was available to everybody? You know, now we fast forward, I guess, now four decades 
decades plus later, uh, I think there are a lot of people in this country that aren't so sure that that American dream is available to them. They're not so sure that they haven't been left out and left behind. And, and that's part of why we're so focused on on the rise of the rest. It's not just about backing the companies in these particular cities, supporting the entrepreneurs in these particular cities, but recognizing that successful companies as they grow, as they create jobs, create a broader set of jobs in their community. The, the best data I've seen on that says for every job in a tech startup, there's five other jobs in the, in the community. So we have to be be creating these 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 new companies have to be creating these new jobs in places all around the country and giving people that that sense of of, uh, of possibility. If people do have an idea to, uh, to start a company. Uh, most people do not have money. Most people do not have friends and family that have money. How do you make sure they too have a shot at building a company and a shot at that American dream? So I'm still optimistic. I know as you are about the you know, America and the future of America. I, I, as since I've been chair of the Smithsonian Institution for the last few years, and we're planning for America. America's 250th birthday in three years in, in, in 2026. It's something that's getting a, you know, a lot of attention. How do we celebrate what got us to now, but also make sure we're leaning in the future? And I remind people what got us to now was, you know, 250 years ago, America itself was a startup. It was just an idea and a pretty fragile idea that like many startups almost hit the wall. But thankfully, we were able to power through, persevere and, and went from this fledgling nation that most people around the world didn't think would survive to the leader of the free world because we have the leading economy economy in the world. And that wasn't an accident. That was, as you know, the work of entrepreneurs who led the way in the agricultural revolution, led the way in the industrial revolution, more recently led the way in the technology revolution. How do we continue to lead the way in a world that is more competitive? We're obviously seeing you know, global uh, battles around innovation, entrepreneurship with China and other countries. We need to win that battle, but we also need to do it in a more inclusive way that brings along more people and more places within our country and allows everybody everywhere to have a real shot at that American dream. So it's interesting because, you know, you've lived in, uh, Steve, I could only last 11 days in Washington. Okay. And I was, I was blown out like a James Bond villain in the old Aston Martin in terms of the way I got ejected. But you are smarter than me. You stayed at, you, you got close enough to politics, but stayed out of it. But I do believe that our political system was the petri dish for all of this. It was the checks and balances in the system, the separate but equal powers, the diffusion of power at the top led to a fairness, if you will, uh, a trust in our laws. There was no autocrat that on his or her whim was going to change the laws. So we're able to put our contracts in place and able to keep things going directionally. And I'll just share this with you to get your reaction. I was in a con law class at Harvard with Larry Tribe. He asked, people what the most important part of the Constitution was. My friend who was a lot smarter than me went on to clerk for Justice Scalia. He said it was the Commerce Clause and Tribe didn't like that. Tribe was a Fourth Amendment guy, but he said, why the Commerce Clause? He said, well, you know, we didn't tax each other for interstate commerce, a result of which we accidentally created this continental free trading block with one currency uh, through this uh, incentive to create more and more commerce, which ultimately, in this gentleman's opinion, led to our our freedoms, our Bill of Rights come from the economy. The strength of the economy allows us to be free. I guess why I'm bringing all this up, you live in Washington, you see the hysteria, the tribalism. Is there a way to break that fever, sir? Is there a way to ring the bell of these people and call for a renewal and a recognition that the first name of the country is United. It's not the tribal states of America or the, the disunited states of America. How do we put it back together so we can go another 250 years? 
Yeah, I do worry about this and even wrote about it in, in, in the book. I think there are a lot of challenge, a lot of threats to America, but the biggest one is exactly what you're just describing. It's sort of a, a, a battle within the country. It's not a battle with, with external you know, factors, other other countries. And we need to figure out some path forward that does unite us. That you know, we have, There's a lot that, that, we sh- that should unite us, a lot of things we should jointly celebrate. Of course, there are always going to be political differences, but we need to focus on the areas where we can work together. Thankfully, in this area, innovation, entrepreneurship, it, it is something that gets bipartisan and support. A decade ago, I worked uh, with then President Obama and you know, Eric Cantor and, and many others on passing the JOBS Act, Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act. More recently, I worked last year on, on the Chips and Science Act, which allocated $10 billion for uh, for regional hubs. Focusing on innovation, entrepreneurship, job creation, economic growth is an opportunity to bring people together. Uh, and so that's why I, I spend so much time on that, not just supporting the entrepreneurs, but also trying to advocate for, for strong policy that, that is supportive of, of innovation, but also can help help make sure America continues to, to, to lead the charge. And as we travel around the country, interestingly, in doing our bus tours, uh, we often have governors, mayors, senators, others others with us. And it wasn't for the fact that I read my briefing documents, I wouldn't know which are Republicans and which are Democrats. When you're out, out in the middle of the country and you're talking to entrepreneurs, and you're talking about building stronger communities, you know, it, it's not a partisan issue. Right. And so right. you know, looking for more opportunities to do that is important. I have done some work in the past, including over a decade ago on with a, a bipartisan Policy Center trying to figure out ways to unite the country. Did testified in the Senate over a decade ago around immigration reform, so we can win what's now a global battle for for talent. Uh, we need to focus on those issues, and we can only do that with with a more of a bipartisan mentality. And hopefully, a path forward is less and less of a divide that separates us, and more and more looking for the common ground that, that unites us. You want to run? No, I think I'll pass on that. Other Others are more charismatic to win and have more patience to govern. So I'll just be a kind of kibitzer on the sidelines. I, you know, I met your wife 15 years ago at the Sun Valley Conference. She's not going to let you run. Just give you the heads up. OK, she yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't think you want to run. I'm just making a joke. You know, my, my wife would I mean, my wife's political policy is castration if I ever attempt to do anything like that. So, <laughs> I mean, that's that that's a non-starter. I ask our authors, I usually go through five subjects and ask our authors to give me a quick sort of, uh, you know, blink sort of response. So let me go through. I went through your book. I said, okay, here are five things I want to talk to you about. Let's start with policy. Well, as I, as I write about the book, I think this next fair, uh, chapter of innovation, uh, because we're going to be reimagining healthcare and food and agriculture and education, a bunch of things that we've we've talked about. You know, governments are going to matter more. You know, entrepreneurs don't like to hear this because they worry that regulations will slow things down, and I and I obviously share some of that concern. But when you're dealing with such fundamental aspects of our lives, like how do we, you know, what drugs should we take, or or you know, what medical devices should, should be uh, authorized, there's going to be more of a connection with uh, with government and. and, and and, and regulations. Uh, and we also have to recognize some of the great uh, innovation, including the internet that got me started, was funded by the government, funded by the, the defense agency DARPA half a century ago. So rather than just complain about what you know how government screws things up, I think we need to lean into that and figure out wh- what can government do that can can actually speed things up around investing in R&D, accelerating some of the, the technologies of the future, doing it in a more inclusive way, which is why the regional hubs are, are so important. So I think policy is going to become more important in the next 10 or 20 years years than it was in the last 10 or 20 years. I think it's so well said. It has to be more about what's right or wrong for the country and right or wrong for American entrepreneurs and less about left or right. It seems like we're too tethered to those positions based on our partisanship. But I, I, I agree with you. Let me let me fire this out. Which of the companies are you following the closest or sectors? 
Well, with Rise of the Res, we also, at Revolution, we have the Rise of the Res Seed Fund, Revolution Ventures, and our later stage Revolution you know, you know, Growth Fund. And, and the Revolution Growth Fund is backed a number of companies that have gone public, like Clear, the biometric security company that gets you through airports, yep. or Sweetgreen, I'm a member. Fast Casual Concept, or DraftKings, which did some things in, 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 in the sports tech uh, space. Uh, some other great companies we've backed, like Tempest is doing some amazing things around health, uh, precision medicine. If you get diagnosed for cancer, for example, they have, now have about two thousand hospitals where they are taking the data and they allow for a more precise diagnosis of what's going on and what the what the treatment should be. So those are some of the you know, companies, the later stage companies we're doing. For Rise of the Rest, we've now invested in over 200 companies in more than 100 different cities. And, it, and it's really place-based. So we're investing across all sectors. And there are really dozens, including the ones I profiled in the in the book that really are rising. A number have already gone public. Some are gearing up to you know go public. And people will be surprised by how many of the, these successful public companies of tomorrow are not in Silicon Valley, not in New York City, but in the middle of the country. Well said. I want to ask you about, because again, this is part of being an entrepreneur, uh, regrets or disappointments in your life or in your investing? And what did you learn? Well, a couple of things, including when AOL merged with Time Warner, which was over 20 years ago, it seemed like a great idea. Strategically, I still think it made a lot of sense. And at least from an AOL shareholder standpoint, financially, it also made a lot of sense. But we weren't able to capitalize on that potential. And AOL went from being the leading internet company by far uh, to being kind of an also ran. And the lesson there is it's not so much about the vision, it's about the execution. And that's you know, a Thomas Edison quote from 100 years, over 100 years ago. And so just focusing on that, it's, it's sort of having the right team focused on the right priority executing in the right you know, you know, way is really where the action is. It's not about the idea. It's about how you execute against that idea. That also has impacted other things that we've done. Some of the companies that we thought had a lot of promise sometimes struggle and stumble and fail because they didn't really get the, the execution uh, right. So those are some of the regrets. And you know, when you're making investments, as you know, in young companies, not all of them are going to be successful. If they are all successful, you're not taking enough risk. You're not trying hard enough to really right. kind of lean into the future. But the, the ones that are always the ones that are disappointed disappointing, kind of like the merger, was when it was a good idea, but somehow they weren't able to execute to really seize the seize the moment, seize the opportunity. Right, well, I think it's well said. I also think, you know, you have cultural situations too, right? You know, if, if MySpace is bought by News Corp, well, maybe it can't germinate and become Facebook, right? I mean, and, you know, maybe there were some cultural issues too, where there was a little bit of- No, a- no question. Part of the execution, right. you know, people and culture are obviously kind of tightly linked. Right, exactly. And some cultures are just a little bit more traditional and yours was a little bit more uh, entrepreneurial. Um, okay, I've landed from Mars. I'm getting out of my spaceship. I meet Steve Case and I ask him to describe America. And I say to Steve, why is it the place for innovation? Well, it's, it goes back to a backstory when we started 250 years ago. Basically, it was a pioneering spirit, people who believed that there was a better a better way, a better life ahead, a better land to, 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 to move to, and and, and created a, a community, created a country, created a, 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 an economy that's now the leader of the pack. And we still do have that pioneering spirit. But what we need to do more of, and we've talked about this through this discussion, is make sure that's available to everybody everywhere, not just some of the folks on the, on the coast, like 
like in like in Silicon Valley. Uh, as I've traveled around, I know you've you know, done a lot of this as, as well. Uh, there are people that are definitely feeling dismayed, kind of you know, angry, you know, kind of frustrated. Left that out. They feel they're, left they're, out. They're being, they feel they're, left, they're out. being yeah. left out and left behind. And and so how do we address that? And and there are other there are different things that need to be considered. And certainly there's a role for for government there. But I think you know backing the entrepreneurs are going to create the companies of the future and create the jobs of the future. And in those communities, help some of the communities that have been struggling to suddenly turn the corner and be more hopeful, I think is critically important. There was a Pew study about probably five or six years ago uh, that said that something like 70% of Americans wake up anxious and fearful about the future. That's really quite sobering. How do we change that right. dynamic right. by giving more people a sense that there's reason to be optimistic about the future and just remind people about why this country is, is special, but make sure it's that, that opportunity, that American dream opportunity really is available to everybody. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, you're bringing up so many good points. I mean, I, I mean, you don't need to hear my blather, but, you know, we, we had 27 amendments to the Constitution. It's a 250-year-old country, so that's an amendment every eight or nine years. Yet our last significant amendment was in 1965. We got to get it together. You know, the, 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 it was a living document and it was a d- designed to be amended to reflect what's going on. And if you ended the gerrymandering and you put everybody in the dish, I mean, wh- are we in a real democracy, Steve, if the candidates themselves are picking the voters? I thought we were supposed to pick the candidates, but they're picking the voters and they're screening out their enemies and they're staying in office for 30, 40 years and it's created a mess, you know, whereas, you know, because you're a great marketing person and these are marketing competitions. If they had a mixture of Republicans and Democrats in the district, they'd have to moderate their views and they would be less extreme, you know, and, and we we need amendments, I think, to make this thing healthier, sort of to reset the cultural dynamic. Um, I totally agree. And obviously the fact that, that most uh, you know people running for re-election are in quote unquote safe districts. And so that encourages them to, not to kind of move out of their lane, not to try to you know compromise, not to try to find consensus. It's, it's, look what happened to Eric Cantor in Virginia, right? right? You know? Yeah, totally. No, I think somehow we, we've, uh, the, the words consensus and compromise, which are the hallmarks of a successful democracy have become black marks. And, and, and it's, it's very unfortunate. It's true on both sides. So it's not a, yes, it's no, not, that's a, it's a bipartisan thing, but like, how do we, how do we get beyond that and, and figure out how to solve some real problems, see some real opportunities and do it in a much more bipartisan way. So my, my last of these five words or themes is location. What, which, which one excites you the most? You think about it. All of them. It's like asking a parent who their favorite child well, you is. Have, having, you have a favorite. Visited 50 cities and hey, invested in 100 have a cities. Favorite. I'm fighting, I'm fighting for all hell, of them. Get the hell out of you. I'm fighting for all of you them. You have this a favorite a, kid, okay? I, I, do not I, have I a know favorite my favorite child. kid. I do not have a favorite grandchild. I do not have a favorite city. All right. You heard it here. I just have here. a favorite podcast host, which is Anthony. You heard it from Steve Case. He's a very balanced even guy, I have a favorite. I have four boys and one girl. Who do you think my favorite is? I mean, come on, it's obvious. Um, all right, but <laughs> but but I like that, and I and I think it's elemental to the book. You basically you wrote this amazing book about the country through the eyes of entrepreneurship and innovation, and it's an aspirational and it's a hopeful book. And uh, you know, you're somebody I admire a great deal because you're you're a doer, you're an innovator, Mike Perec used to tell me this, Steve, you'll have to verify whether it's true or not. You used to go into the chat rooms at AOL as CEO. I mean, you weren't 
saying you were this. It'd be just check things out once in a while. Is that something you used to do? Totally. Totally. That's my version of management by wandering around. I was wandering around the service, chatting up people and finding out what they liked. And we'll do more of that and what they don't like. And we'll try to fix it. He was so impressed with that. You know, I remember being in a research meeting. He had a strong buy on AOL and he was just so impressed with your your hands-on nature. And that was one of the examples he used. And I'm going back into the mid nineties now when I was back at Goldman. So anyway, I wish you uh, nothing but great success. What's next for you? Do we have another book on the horizon or no? No, I don't think so. Although I didn't think I, I, this is a second book I wrote. I wrote a book six or seven years ago called The Third Wave, the Internet's Third Wave. And I, I thought when I wrote that book, I was kind of done. But this rise the rest because, as we've discussed, the last decade, I've had the opportunity to travel around the country to see firsthand what's happening and was struck by those stories. There were surprising stories about surprising places. I just felt like this story had to be told. And that's why I wrote the book. I, I don't think I have another one in me, but I've oh, learned, as you see. have, never, never yeah, say never. You never know what's going to happen. But you know, my takeaway from this podcast is I am your favorite podcaster, okay? That is my takeaway, okay, from everything that you said. I just want you to know that. All right, Brian, I appreciate that. that. I'm sure that will be the, the sound <laughs> no, no, bite. Exactly. Well, of course. I'm going to try to get that in the New York Post. Okay? No, I'm kidding. The Rise of the Rest, what a great book. How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream by Steve Case, a best-selling author. Really just a phenomenal book. And you're, uh, you know, the country owes you a debt because you're out there helping everybody, Steve. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining uh, Open Book. Thank you, Anthony. Great to be with you as always. So Steve is right. We need to invest in tomorrow's innovation, not only in the major cities or the Silicon Valley of the world, but other parts of America. And what I loved about his book is we saw his enthusiasm for entrepreneurs, large and small. And who knows, so many interesting things come out of middle America. I'm talking about not the coast, just things inside the center of the country. Let's talk about Walmart as an example, Bentonville, Arkansas, or Berkshire Hathaway germinating from Omaha, Nebraska. I think Steve's point is that America in its 50 states is a major cultural hub for entrepreneurship. I remember Steve himself is a native of Hawaii. Uh, I also remember fondly uh, Stephen's brother, uh, who was the CEO at Hambrecht and Quist. And unfortunately, he passed away about 20 years ago. Another very, very great entrepreneur. But the point I am making I think is very important for everybody to listen to is follow Steve's career, read his book, and get a sense for how important it is to think and believe and take risk in America. And so I'm just giving a big shout out to Daniel H. Case III, Steve's brother, uh, who was a great guy uh, and is still missed today. You 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 have the internet in your house or no? I don't know how to do it. You don't know how to do it, right? So you don't even know who Steve Case is, right? You remember America Online or you don't remember it? No. Mm-mm. Okay, so he invented a system in the 1990s that could allow you to use your email and surf the internet, and it was very very popular. Why do you think you never caught on to the internet, Ma? Why you just said the hell with it? You're probably better off, That's by the way. Right. But. That's what I. That's how I feel because I think that sometimes the internet is not a good thing to to do. I think the inter- I feel bad that I don't have the internet, so I could order my food on the internet and it would come to my house where I don't have to be. Yeah, but that's from that's. 
Right, but Deirdre can take care of that for you. Just tell us what you need. It'll drop it off right at the front door. That's all. You don't have to worry about that. But let me thank let, you. Let me let me ask you this question though. Do you believe in the American dream? Yes, absolutely. You, okay. You have, you are living the American dream. Okay, tell me why I'm living the American dream. Because you're very brilliant, very very smart, and you use your smartness to make money. And you also share your money. So you have, like, to me, you're perfect. I mean, if you really analyze your personality, I don't see any flaws. And if I'm saying it because you're my son, it's, it's the truth. Okay. You, but- you're very loving. Uh, you know where it's at. You know the people that are not so good. You read them very well. When you've had enough, you you just walk away. You don't you don't. Uh, belittle him, but you walk yeah, away. Yeah, there's no need to punch down. I don't like punching down. When like these reporters right. write nasty stories, I laugh. It's no big deal. No, there's no reason to punch right. down at anybody. But right. but let me like, but let me ask you this: When you say the American dream, what does the American dream mean to you? What does it mean to you to have healthy children, number one, and to be able to uh, buy a home for your family? And, and be able to support them as good as you possibly can. And I, I, I believe that uh, education is very important to children, and you did everything you could with your education. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. You were unbelievable. All right. Well, Steve Case is a lot like that, Ma. I enjoyed uh, spending time with him. I interviewed him today for the show. Talking to Anthony. Talking to Anthony. Okay. All right. I love you, Ma. All right. I All right I'll talk you to you later. Much, All right. All right. Bye. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me or chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter or Instagram. You can also text me at plus one nine one seven nine oh nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. I'll see you back here next week.